All kinds of ways to achieve fame. Advertising is just advertising is the most expensive way to achieve fame, but it's also the most reliable because you can buy your way into it. But you can achieve fame. You know, the press falls in love with you. The press fell in love with Tesla. The press fell in love with Google and made them famous. And they spent nothing on marketing at the beginning. And and you can become famous because your CEO is good copy. Steve Jobs was great copy for a long time. And made Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got one of my favorite authors, Bob Hoffman. Bob, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So for people who aren't familiar with your wildly entertaining writing on the advertising industry, can you tell people a little bit about the best-selling books and, and the 40 years of experience they're based on? Sure. I worked in the agency business for uh, about 41 years, I think. I was CEO of two independent agencies and the U.S. operation of an international agency. I retired from the agency business about eight years ago, and since then I've been writing and commenting about the agency business, and I've written five books about advertising and uh, I've been very fortunate each of each of them has become a number one seller at Amazon and uh, my point of view on the advertising business is that I'm a pain in the I think the the business is going in the wrong direction and I think a lot of people in the business agree with me but because they're still in the business, they can't say so because they have jobs and families and mortgages and cars, and I don't care. So I'm free to say what's on my mind, and I hope that I'm representing a lot of people in the advertising and marketing world who feel the same way I do, but aren't free to say it out loud. Yeah. You know, I think about this. So even though I've been a finance guy most of my career, originally I'm an art school dropout. So a lot of my a lot of my other fellow art school dropouts who, who couldn't make it as an art, who couldn't make it as an artist and decided they wanted to actually yeah. own a home at some point, they, they own advertising agencies, right? Uh -huh. Some of them have yeah. been on this show and stuff. And so I yeah. feel like I get to live like a little bit by proxy because sometimes they'll have some like big Silicon Valley client or something, they'll fly me out to come sit in the meeting with them. I, I think my fascination with, with marketing is because 25 years ago, I got my first sales job as like a 15-year-old kid, and I've been right. selling stuff ever since, even when I was CEO of a private equity fund. I'm just top sales guy. Yeah. You know, biz, biz, the word business is just a fancy term for sales. Yeah, yeah, That's right. what business is. It's selling things, right? So That's what business is, yeah. I had this idea about 10 years ago. Man, if I learned something about marketing, maybe I wouldn't have to go to so many sales meetings. If we do a little <laughs> mark. So I've been like this closet marketing nerd reading so many books and taking courses and and you know my, my own attempts here with, with the podcast. But I think why I've, I've just been so attracted to your work, besides that it's just funny, like it, it's such good entertainment value, is mm -hmm. there's so many things that were like mysteries where I thought like, I must not, like, it must be because I'm an outsider, because this doesn't make sense. 
Why, why yeah. does it work like this? And then yeah. I read your stuff and you just call it out. So yeah. it's, it helps me feel yeah, less dumb. Like I'm, I'm just like the outsider who doesn't get it. Yeah. Marketing people, you know, in order to, to, to make money, you have to have a little bit of mystery about what you do so that people think they can't do it also. So we, we have created a lot of mystery around marketing and we understand consumers in a special way that the average person doesn't understand them. And, and we have this, this magical knowledge and it's mostly baloney. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's an art to marketing and there's, and there's science to marketing. But most of the people who practice marketing really aren't very good at either the art or the science of it. There are, there are, you know, it's like any other field. 90% of the people are mediocre. 10% of the people are really smart and know what they're doing and do a great job. And everyone else is, you know, average. And average is, you know, unfortunately, average is like getting to be very unusually good in the marketing business these days, because I think the marketing business has been going down the wrong track. And, uh, the, you know, it's not just me. I think the, the statistics and the data show that we have been not doing so well lately. And I think experts inside and outside the marketing business mostly agree that the, that particularly advertising is has gotten worse than it used to be and is less effective than it used to be. And uh, I write a lot about that. Well, you know. Again, I've been a fan of, of the books over the years, and, and I like it in your emails, and I'll come to the blog sometimes. I think... But... Oh, I thought there was a but. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I'm, uh, I'm concerned that you're going to stop at some point, and then, then who's going to tell us the truth? <laughs> okay. You know, like, I like at the beginning of 101 that, like, you're, you're like the pickle story about the... <laughs> <laughs> the 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 woman with the pickle brand who calls her her nephew who's the, the yes. advertising executive says I need to write some ads yeah. and he, he uses yeah, all I, the marketing I, garbage speak yeah I I I actually I used my aunt as a she's not in the pickle business but I used she she's I had her in mind as I wrote that and you know the the, the guy who's in the advertising business who's answering her you know I've known hundreds of guys like that who they don't really understand anything but they've learned a language they've learned a vocabulary and they use the same cliches over and you know they've learned 25 cliches and they use use them over and over and that passes for knowledge all too often in advertising and marketing so p.s can i tell you that my favorite title of any of your books is marketers are from yeah. mars consumers are from new jersey <laughs> Yeah, that was a good title. I like that title too. That that was inspired, I think. And it, it I like that book. You know, some of the books you like better than others. You have your face like children. But yeah, I, that that you I agree with you. That's a good title. You know, I think I think one of the one of the first times that I really thought oh man, maybe what's being said out there isn't all there is to be said was when I First started reading you, I don't know, this has got to be maybe, maybe like nine, 10 years ago. And you said, every, you know, everybody knows that everything is being sold online and that brick and mortar is dead unless you look at, unless you actually look at data. Right? <laughs> and it yeah. was like, at that point, it was something like 5% of sales were happening online. Right. Like today, right. is it like something like 15% maybe now or what? I think before COVID, it was 12%. It, it had COVID. gotten up to 12. After 
uh, post, well, assuming we are post-COVID now, I think it's up around 20%, but it will settle back. You know, some people have discovered online shopping now because of COVID, because they couldn't leave their houses and they, they did it for the first time and they like it. I was always shocked that online advertising, that online shopping wasn't bigger than, you know, I couldn't for years, like the first 10 or so years of, 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 of online shopping, it was only like, you know, six, eight, 10%. I couldn't understand. It's, you know, for me who hates shopping, to me, it's the greatest thing ever invented. And I can't believe more people haven't adopted it. But, you know, I think as a result of COVID, more people will take to online shopping, but there, there are still, you know, people underestimate the 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 power of traditional consumer behavior, and and traditional consumer behavior is people like to go shopping, they like to go out, they like to see things, they like to touch them, they like to see other people, they like to see the merchandise, and online. You know, online shopping doesn't give you that opportunity. Now, there are people like me who don't really care about shopping and, you know, we'll, we'll stay with online shopping. But, you know, it, it, I, I'd be very surprised if it ever gets above 20% of total re- retail. Yeah. And even if it did. It gets talked about like it's like 120%. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> everyone thinks everyone thinks that everyone's buying everything online and it's simply not the case. Like yeah. I I'm not into like ignoring the trend that that nope. more people are buying a bit over time, but it's not like it's not like, you know, oh, the numbers going up and, you know, by 2025 it will now be 100%, right? Yeah. Like yeah. And and that is that, you know, that's that's life in media. Media has to have a story every day. And, you know, everyone thinks electric cars, you know, I don't know what the number, what the, maybe electric cars are 3%, 4% of all cars. You know, if you ask the average person, they would say it's probably 50% or something being sold. And that's always the case. Whatever is trendy tends to be exaggerated. And the marketing industry does it. The media industry does it. We're always looking for that thing that's going to change everything. You know, blockchain was going to change everything. 5G was going to change everything. And whatever comes, you know, Pokemon Go. Go go back and look at, like, the Wall Street. Look at the the media one. Pokemon Go was like a big deal for a half hour it lasted. It was going to change everything. And, you know, it, the world well, doesn't work that way. It's, yeah. it's tough when their primary job is to sell newspapers or to sell clicks, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we think that their primary job is to give us solid information. That yeah. confusion is such a problem. You know, like my favorite, like, you know, if everybody doesn't know, Bob's, Bob's blog is called The Ad Contrarian. And he's got a book by the same name. And my favorite contrarian investor is a guy named yeah. uh, Bruce Flat from Brookfield Asset Management. Mm-hmm. They raised like six hundred billion dollars, right? And he's mm-hmm. like, in the recent years, he's bought malls. He's like, yeah. everyone thinks malls are completely dead. He's like, bad malls are in trouble. Bad malls are in trouble. Good malls are going to benefit from the bad malls being in trouble. You know, yeah. like it, it's it's when I started writing, 
you know, the the marketing industry considered me. And, and, you know, I used to get emails every day. Well, how could you be so? How can you? And all of a sudden, like in the past two or three years, I've become a genius. I went from, I got promoted to genius in the past few years because what I was talking about has come to pass. And the, and I, I was, I wasn't in then and I'm not a genius now. It's just that there are so few people who, who have, can apply common sense to things like marketing. They want to believe that that marketing is magic, that marketing, you need special intelligence to do it. It's not that complicated. It's really not. And if you think about consumer behavior and you think about how most people behave, it's pretty it's not that difficult to find, to figure out what's going to work in marketing and what's not going to. Now, if you have fantasies about how people, if you don't understand how people work, then you're going to have a tough time. If, if you're living in a, fan, in, in a delusional world uh, where, you know, people are in love with brands and people want to have relationships with brands and people are joining the conversation about brands, you know, if you believe that, then you're going to have trouble. But, you know, if you're sensible and, and you and, and, you know, people always ask, what's the most important thing for an advertiser? What's the most important skill for an advertising person to have? And I always say the ability to, to observe, to see what people actually do, to sit in a bar and watch when, the, when, the, when you're watching a football game or a baseball game or a basketball game. What commercials do they look at when they come on? What commercials do they look at from the bar to, to look at? If you observe that, then you have a sense of what kind of advertising is going to get people's attention. And if you don't, if you don't have that simple skill of, of observation, advertising business will be a lot harder for you because you're going to believe all the baloney. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. I think about, I don't know. A few of the things that I've really appreciated okay. from you. Listen, um, if you don't like it, they really bring this exact same point to home of like, what's the difference between what everybody's saying versus what's actually happening? You know, like yeah. I got into podcasting, you know, 600 episodes ago, there was about 250,000 podcasts. Now there's right. over a million, right? Yeah. But, yeah. but if I believed what people were saying about my industry back then, nobody was listening to the radio anymore and podcasts were the only things and I, I really feel like your stuff is some of the only places I could get real numbers. And you're like, mm-hmm. actually, 85% of people are still listening to the radio. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> like it, it's it, not, it, the game it, isn't over yet, you know? Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's hard to, to keep your feet on the ground and, and, to, and to base your, your point of view on on facts nobody is smarter than the fact that that's where i start nobody is smarter than the facts and people who think they're smarter than the facts who think they know better but don't actually have the facts are they cause a lot of trouble and they waste a lot of money 
And having the facts is very, and that's why when I write, I'm very careful because there are a lot of people in, in my field to, you know, they are in the advertising business or the marketing business and they're, you know, they go to conferences and they shoot their mouths off like I do. And it's all assertion after assertion after assertion with no facts, no data. It's just all they want to do is talk about the future, and they want to talk about the future because nobody can fact-check the future. So they can say whatever they want and get away, and people take notes, oh, these, this guy's brilliant. And 10 years from now, when it turns out the person was all wrong, who cares? Nobody's paying attention to them anymore, and uh, the guy got his paycheck for talking about the future. And I try very hard not to do that. I try very hard not to make assertions if I can't back them up with actual data. You know, the marketing industry and the advertising industry say they are very data-driven now. They are driven by legends and rituals. They pay no attention to the data. Let me give you a perfect example. 70% of the wealth in the United States is owned by people over 50. Less than 10% of all advertising and marketing is directed at those people. Now, in what universe does that make any sense? So this is actually something I was going to bring up. Yeah. Well, one thing first. We had Joe Mandizi on the show, the editor-in-chief for Media Post. And, mm-hmm. you know, on your website, I mean, you've, you've done these big, you know, you've done big campaigns for the Toyotas of the world, biggest brands in the world. You've got all this experience, but then you're willing to be so honest. Like the one quote on your website, Hoffman from Media Post, Hoffman is the voice of reason in our increasingly crazy world of advertising. His no BS down to earth reasoning will have you reexamining everything you do. You know, what you just said was something I wanted to bring up. It's one of my favorite things in any of your recent emails. I think it was in your email. It was a... I think it was a Tom Peters quote where he said, I want to teach the shortest MBA. Will you tell people that quote? Yeah. What I said was some people can say in a Twitter more important stuff than marketing experts can say in a lifetime. And Tom Peters tweeted this out a few weeks ago. He says, I want to go into a marketing class and I want to teach a marketing class and it, it would take me 15 seconds to do the whole semester. I, I walk in and I'd say, one, women buy everything. And two, people over 50 have all the money. <laughs> That's really so important to know. If, if you're in marketing or advertising and you don't know that, you're helpless. You're clueless. You don't know what you're doing. And yet... The marketing industry essentially ignores old people because because marketers and advertising people, they like the excitement of youth. They don't like the boredom of middle age. They don't like the frailty of old age. They want to talk to their young friends. And what we have in advertising and marketing now, yeah, and be cool. What we have in marketing now and advertising now is marketing by selfie stick. Everyone's marketing to themselves. Everyone's advertising to themselves. They're not talking to the people who buy stuff, who have all the money. You know, 57, I think it is, percent of all new cars are bought by people over 50. Show me a car commercial with someone over 50 in it. It's, you know, I I wish I could explain it, but I can't. There's just... Like I said, it's legends and rituals in advertising and marketing that have been gone on for 50 years. You have to talk to people 18 to 34. Why? I don't know. They don't have any money. 
they buy, you know, what do they buy? Soda and fast food. That's what they buy. So, but, you know, all of a sudden, some people are starting to wake up to this. I think the marketing industry, to some degree, is starting to realize how screwed up it is. And uh, I hope, I hope it improves. I mean, your, your writing has really changed my perspective on things. After I read that from you the first time years ago, I went and started, I went to the AARP website and I started looking like who, who has gathered these people that have all the money already? Like, how is that not like the biggest treasure trove? Like, yeah. And, And no one, the only people who pay attention to them is the pharma industry. Right. And to the pharma industry, all anyone over 50 is, is as a, a conglomeration of ailments. That's all anyone over 50 is. They're, they're, yeah, yeah. And people over 50 are very active. They, they buy cars. They, they, they buy everything. You know, 51% of all the um, money spent by consumers in the U.S. is spent by people over 50. And if people, here's a great one, people over 50 in the U.S., if they were their own country, they'd be the third largest economy in the world. They'd be a larger, people over 50 in America are a larger economy than the entire economy of Germany or Japan or India. And yet we essentially ignore them. And it's, you know, don't ask me to explain it because I can't. I'm interested, you know, for me specifically, I'm selling, yep. I'm selling a cash flow investment in real estate, right? Yep. For somebody like me, who, who, you know, has actually listened to you, what kind of advice would you have as we think through trying to grow our investor database with that information? Well, it's very hard for me to give you advice without the specifics of knowing sure. your business, knowing what your strengths are, knowing what your competition is. I hate to give advice to people when I really don't know what their business is. And that's what I would be doing in your case. But as a general rule, if you're selling real estate to people, I'm guessing an enormous amount of real estate is sold to people over 50. And uh, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but I would suspect that your best customers are probably older than your competitors think they are. Once again, I don't know. I'm just guessing. Yeah. But that would be my guess. No, I mean, it makes sense because we're, we're a fund. The idea is they give us money. They don't have to babysit the real estate. We just send them the quarterly checks, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and I do see a lot of my competitors really worried about how good their app is. And I'm thinking like, yeah. I don't think my mom's friends care about <laughs> your app. Yeah. You know? I know. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to have a good app, but sure. But you know, it's like you, you may not be old enough to remember this, but in the 1990s, in the mid 90s, and the and and the and the late 90s, when someone announced they were launching a website, their <laughs> share value would go up because investors thought that having a website was gonna what a difference Maybe that's gonna make. Yeah. Now, if you're not in the, if you're not an online retailer, having a website is like having a business card. It's just the cost of doing business. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a competitive advantage. And, but you know, 
people fall in love with whatever new thing comes along, and uh, that's what you get. When you think of any brand or anybody who is good at marketing to people in their 50s and 60s and older, is there anybody that comes yeah, I, to mind? I, I always think Apple does a, a good job because they don't try to market by age. They don't try to hold up a mirror and say, <coughs> oh, you're this, uh, you're, you do this. Uh, we, we understand you because you do this. Now, Apple kind of talks to everyone, I think, and they've done a good job of doing it. They, their, their advertising is generally both wide ranging in, in its appeal to a lot of people, but it, but it, it also doesn't get stale. It's not old-fashioned it's not so so they're able to be current yet broad in there and and they don't seem to focus on one type of person or one age group of among um, people and th- that's another thing that drives me crazy is the the generation this and the generation that and you know every every 15 years the research industry has to come up with a new generation that's completely different from the past so they have something to sell to marketing and and the the fact is that there's just as much diversity within generations as there is between generations. And the idea that everyone who was born between the year 2000 and the year 2020 have something in common is insane. It's like astrology. It's even worse than astrology. Astrology <laughs> at least at least divides us into 12 groups of nothing. This divides us into four or five groups of nothing. The Generation X and the Generation Z and the Millennials. We went through 15 years of horseshit about Millennials that we had to listen to, and it got nowhere. It, it, it did nothing. Nobody benefited from it. Nobody got rich and famous from it. It was just baloney after baloney millennials are this and the millennials were not going to be buying any cars now millennials are the largest group that buys cars so that just shows you how consistent uh, we are yeah i i was born in 1980 so technically i'm yeah. the oldest millennial right yeah my kids are so my kids are gen z i've got four kids yeah almost everything that got said about millennials 10 years ago you could just say about my teenage my my friends teenage exactly. friends it's they're exactly. like they weren't millennials they were Teenagers. <laughs> exactly right. It, it's, it's life stage. It's not generation. P- people, you know, people don't change. The gadgets change. The people don't change. It's the gadgets that change. They have new gadgets they play with. A new t- but what motivates people, the things that the principles, the principles essentially stay the same. The circumstances change, but the principles of what motivates people to behave in certain ways stay stay the same. You know, that makes me think about the Jeff Bezos thing of yeah. when he's talking to his people saying stuff changes all the time. What's not going to change? Let's focus on it. Like, do we think anybody's yeah. going to want their stuff slower? Is there any yeah. is there anything that's ever going to change that people are going to want their stuff right. slower? Nope. Exactly. Okay, let's let's invest heavy let's in Let's do it faster. Let's heavy right. let's invest heavy in that cuz in 6 years yeah. the internet isn't going to yeah. change people wanting their stuff faster, okay. right? So I think the next thing I really want to get your insight on is 
I really like the simplicity in advertising in your newest book, Advertising for Skeptics. Do you know this book by a Northwestern professor? Used to be at at Notre Dame, Albert Laszlo Barabasi. The book's called The Formula. Have you heard of this one? No, no. It, It basically it basically is like you know thousands and thousands of hours of his PhD researchers backing up what you say in advertising for skeptics. Okay. So really, yeah. So you might I like gotta it. find that book. Okay. You mean I was right about you, something? Apparently, apparently I got to find this guy. So, okay, so yeah. the book is, you know, him and one of his PhDs decide to write this, this paper on the anatomy of a failure and mm. they do all this research and nobody will publish it because it's too depressing. Mm. And yeah. so they're joking around and he's like, well, do you want to try a different one instead? And the kid's like, well, not if it's about failure. We should write one about the what's the anatomy of success. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. And then like, actually, I, I bet we could get published if we write that. So they do this like multi-year study. And it's everything from like fighter pilots from World War II to scientists to music people to like all these different genres. And essentially, just copious amounts of research for years backs up what you say in advertising, which is uh, fame, like you want to be yeah. successful, get famous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, in 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 marketing and everything, there's no guarantees. There's no always and never. There's no yes and no. There's no black and white. It's just likelihoods and probabilities. And you are so much more likely to be successful at whatever it is you're doing if you're famous. If you're famous, people will. Take your phone calls. They'll do podcast interviews with you. They will. They will have lunch with you. They'll sit on your board. They will. And well, to your point, is, to your point in the book, yeah. they will buy your hamburger, which is objectively a worse <laughs> hamburger, because yeah. at least by buying it from McDonald's, they're not taking a risk, even though the diner they're looking at is probably better, right? Right. You know, the likelihood is if if McDonald's is on the left side of the street and you're in the and there's another place on the right side of the street, and you're in a town where you don't know anything, and these are your only two choices, that the the odds are that the one on the right side of Bubba's Burgers are going to be way better than McDonald's Burgers, but the odds are you're going to go to McDonald's because they're famous, and if they're famous, you make some assumptions about them. They can't afford to poison you. They can't afford to have snot on the table. They can't afford to have, you know, scary people running around to hurt you. So you make some assumptions and you go to McDonald's, even though the likelihood is the other burger is better. And that's because the fame, fame is a monstrously big advantage. In, and, the, and the first thing that advertising should try to do is make a brand famous. You know, I think about this. I I don't eat much McDonald's in my life, okay? But I remember being in in China and it was like I really like consider myself an adventure person, adventurous person. My staff member had grown up in China and took me out, ate all these crazy things all the time. But like at one point I was like I was just tired, my willpower was down and there was a McDonald's. I I was either in Shanghai or Beijing and I'm like even though I don't even eat McDonald's at home, I'm going to eat it here because I'm just, I just don't want to take a risk. I just want to get some food, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I know it wasn't going to be good, but I knew, <laughs> I knew exactly how bad it was going to be. Right? You knew what it was, right. <laughs> like you think about And, and you, it, was, it wasn't going to be good, but it was going to be good enough. Yeah. And you knew it was going to be good enough. Whereas if you went to someplace you didn't know, you didn't know if it was going to be good enough. And that's 
another thing that fame does for brands. Yeah. The the variants, when I was in China, there was stuff that was like so good. I was like, why don't we have this yeah. for Chinese food in America? And then there yes. was some stuff that was like, you people, you eat this yeah. on purpose? Yeah. <laughs> my, my employee's name was Davis. I was like, Davis, you, yeah. you, you, you we paid you for this? choose to eat this? <laughs> you yeah. ordered this on purpose? <laughs> right? But you think about it from a survival mechanism. Like there's a reason that the Bible calls humans sheep, right? Like there's a pretty good probability if enough of the humans have survived by doing something, you're you're probably not that likely to die doing it. You know, so like yeah. it's a great shortcut, right? And yeah, and I don't know if you say it exactly like this in the book, but I feel like this is what you're saying of like being honest that that fame is just an is just a rapidly unfair advantage or massively unfair advantage. It's like it's too crass. So we need to dance around and come up with all these other things rather than going like, right. how do we buy or engineer becoming well-known? Yeah. And, and that's what marketing people do. They they try to make it mysterious so that they can charge more for their services and, and they are more res- respected. And saying, you know, the first thing we have to do is become famous. Well, anyone can say that. You don't have to have any brilliant insight to uh, to understand that and so we like you say we dance around that we you know it, it, it's it's not sophisticated enough it's not you know we make uh you know we we earn our stripes by understanding relationships between brands and individuals that kind of that's what we do that you know come on it's way more likely to be successful if you're famous than if you understand relationships between brands and individuals it's funny because there's like this social pressure to prepare, to almost like pretend this isn't happening you know but i'll just tell you this show is not that big a deal. We're the biggest innovation podcast or like, you know, one of the top innovation podcasts in the world. Nobody really cares. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But because I have like these billionaires and, you know, we had just interviewed Danny Glover this year or whatever. Right. Like I'm like, yeah. I'm like one step closer to famous people than my regular friends. Yeah. I've got yeah. to tell you, I have regular friends who treat me a little bit different because yeah. this show has become somewhat popular. It's funny. Yeah. I, think I'm pretty much the same. They're pretty much the same. But like they like they talk to me just a little bit different. And like there's certain things that they'll they'll say like out of the habit because we've been friends for 10 years. And then I find them like editing what they were going to say and like going back and like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it's almost like they make like this exception for me. And it's kind of funny to me. It's silly, but you have gained status and, and it's, everyone has status anxiety. There's a great book called Status Anxiety by a guy named, a philosopher named Alan DeBotton. And I suggest that if you can read it, but uh, I've had the same thing happen to me just in the past few weeks, I was asked to speak to members of parliament in the UK. And all of a sudden now people are like, Oh, you know, all of a sudden I, my status has gone up because I was asked to address members of parliament. You know, I'm the same I was three weeks ago, but they think I'm, you know, my status. And it's, it's funny. People are funny and understanding people is not easy. Okay. I just found it on Amazon. I just put it on my wish yep. list. Status anxiety. Okay. Alan. You know, what's interesting though, is if yep. we're willing to be honest about it, it, it can be kind of like a smart cut to the top. Like you kind of skip some of the rows in the ladder if you just climb up that ladder, right? It's- there was a very interesting study done about famous artists. 
about what are the what are the factors that create success for artists and the number one factor is hanging out with successful artists if you hang out with successful artists you have a much better chance of becoming a successful artist because of your association <laughs> with people who are successful or are viewed as successful and 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 nobody knows what good art and bad art everywhere you know it's all subjective and so but if you're hanging out with famous artists people who assume you must be good and consequently your the likelihood of your success goes up substantially you know there's this great story that proves your point there did you hear about this documentary about alice cooper's producer shep gordon it's called supermensch yep. have you heard of this no. one no. So this doc just shows like, you know, how this Jewish kid from New York accidentally, when he moved to L.A., accidentally stayed at the hotel room where Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix were, were hanging out. They became friends. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix said, you're Jewish. You should, you should be a producer. <laughs> okay. Or no, agent. He, agent. You're Jewish. An you should agent. be an agent. Right. Okay. Right. Kind right. of fun. Right. Right. But he ends up getting Alice Cooper as his client for like 40-something yeah. years. They're such good friends, yeah. right? But he took on Anne Murray, the like Canadian folk singer. Okay, a little bit different end of the spectrum from Alice Cooper. And in this in the show, he basically explains how so Alice Cooper used to go to like go binge drinking with with John Lennon and a couple of other guys from like the monkeys and whatever. Right? And he's like, hey, guys, can you please take this girl with you for like 15 minutes? I just need you to hang out with her. Can you just do me this favor and arrange for a bunch of paparazzi to be at the club? And here's Anne Murray with John Lennon, Alice Cooper, da da da, and the the doc like literally shows how it launched her career, and she became the Anne Murray that's on all the Christmas specials for 20 years after that. You know, she had a wonderful voice; she really did. But nobody I, I, knew about I, her yet, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so that's how. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, fame's a funny thing. And uh, uh, let me tell you an Alice Cooper story. I was in I was in Hawaii. I'm playing golf one day, and there he is in front of me. He's playing in the the foursome in front of me, and, and he he he, you know how weird he looked. Well, he was dressed in golf clothes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, whoa, this is this doesn't make any sense at all. Seeing him dressed in golf clothes playing golf is that's too funny. Yeah. So obviously, the fame thing can be done wrong. You know, like when these brands. Sure. They just put a famous people, a famous person on the ad. There's no call to action. There's no, there's no why you would actually want this product. That doesn't work either, right? No, you know, using famous people doesn't necessarily make your brand famous. I mean, that's just borrowed interest. So, you know, making your brand famous takes a lot more than just hiring some, you know singer or basketball player or something to endorse it it takes it takes more than that well and then famous can also go wrong the other direction where it's like if it's all about ego and it's all about me being the famous ceo or something and we're not actually selling anything right it's yeah. it's just about me that can get yeah. off track too huh absolutely you know like i said there's no guarantees it's just likelihoods and probabilities and if your brand is famous it's more likely to be successful. How you achieve, there are all kinds of ways to achieve fame. Advertising is just, advertising is the most expensive way to achieve fame, but it's also the most 
reliable because you can buy your way into it. But you can achieve, you know, the press falls in love with you. The press fell in love with Tesla. The press fell in love with Google and made them famous. And they spent nothing on marketing at the beginning. And and you could become famous because your CEO is good copy. Steve Jobs was great copy for a long time and made Apple famous before they spent a whole lot of money on advertising. And so, and PR can make, and stunts can make you famous there are all kinds of ways to achieve fame but if if you're if you're competing with a famous brand and you're not famous it's very hard it makes me think about when you say it, it makes me think about richard branson you yeah. know in his books he talks about the chairman's job is to get free ink like you need <laughs> you need to get yourself on the front page of a newspaper where you can't even buy an ad that's your job get yeah. yourself on the front page of the newspaper for free instead of buying the ad and and absolutely, that's about achieving fame. And the problem is, like so many CEOs who are who are good copy are also annoying and a pain in the. And so you got to be get careful about what you let your CEO do. You got to make sure that he or she is likable and is and is interesting just some bland financial guy ceo happens to be head of a big company that that doesn't that doesn't do you much good yeah it has to be someone likable personality interesting unusual things to say that that that's helpful can you think of anybody in business or has anybody come to mind for you who has managed to become famous and stay humble? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know these people personally, so I don't know if they're humble or not. Yeah. You know, a lot of people seem to be humble, mm. and then you meet them and you find out they're big jerks. Yeah. So, yeah, in my business, I can. You know, I, I know in the advertising business, I can name Jeff Goodby as one of, you know, Goodby Silverstein yeah. Partners is one of the great agencies in the world. And Jeff is a great guy. He's not full of shit. He's not full of himself. He's a, he's a very, very nice down-to-earth guy who's very smart and very successful. So in my business, I would name him as someone who fits that bill. Yeah, oh, that's good. He, and he's got, a great, he's got a great course on Masterclass. That's really yeah. where I feel like I got a little bit of insight into him because you, you get to see enough of him to get a sense for how he might operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you think about some of your biggest achievements here with these best-selling books and speaking to parliament <laughs> and all these kind of things, what's, what's satisfying for you? What, what makes you feel like maybe this was worth your time? You know, I've had kind of like two careers. My first career was inside the advertising business. And my second career has been outside the advertising business. And my career inside the advertising business was wonderful. I did very well. I enjoyed it very much. But my second career has actually been more psychically rewarding to me because I'm doing only what I want to do. You know, I'm, I'm talking only when I want to talk to groups that I want to talk to, saying what I want to say, and uh, writing what I want to say. And that's very rewarding to me that there are people who are interested in reading it. it you know, if for me, there's no point in writing if you're going to write what everyone else is writing. If you can't add something to the topic, to I'm going to use the word conversation, God, save me and 
forgive me for using that word. But if you can't add something that's different, why bother? But so much of writing about advertising and marketing is the same stuff churned over and over again, you know, and and so so it's rewarding to me. The other thing that's rewarding to me is that, like I said before, I was in it for a long time, and all of a sudden I've become like smart, and and you know I haven't changed, but maybe the perception of what's going on in the advertising and marketing world has changed. And so if I've contributed to that in any way, that's very satisfying. So I know this is going to be like a drastic. This probably isn't yeah. the best comparison, okay? Because yeah. They're, they're going to be they're, – they're much different in scale. But yeah. uh, I'm such a fan for Winston Churchill. I love the books about yes. him. I love the movies about him. And he was a big outcast. Nobody wanted yeah. to hear what he had to say about Hitler. Nobody wanted to hear what he had to say about the Nazis, right? And he yeah. was pushed out. He was minimized. Nobody wanted to hear it until, until, until all of a him. sudden <laughs> – all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow. Well, you know – Hitler put on a great face and that actually wasn't what we were looking for. Right. Right. And then all of a sudden the only guy who's been with the megaphone annoying everyone for how many years, all of a sudden, like I make that guy PM, he's the only one who can handle this. Right. Yeah. And like, Uh, I know it's an over, it's like, it's too dramatic. Tenth of one thousandth of 1% of that. But I I agree with you. I think the, the Winston Churchill story is a fantastic story about someone who was an outcast, saved the world and then became an out and then they threw him out again afterward. And uh, he once said, my favorite line of his was, he said, success is never final. And very true. But even though my example is way too dramatic, there has to be some professional, my guess is there, there would be some professional satisfaction for you to identify you talk so specifically about the ad fraud. We talk so specifically about creating like that people whose like main job is to win an award, not make your company money. You like you talk about these things over and over, and then finally, all, finally everybody sees it. Like, or at least a large portion more people recognize yeah. it, and it's like and- I'm not alone anymore. I wasn't crazy, yeah, right? <laughs> and, and the one thing we haven't talked about that I think is the most important thing. And the thing that I, the thing that I've spoken about most, and written about most, is, is the danger of online tracking. Yeah. The dangers to individual and the dangers to democratic societies by the amount of of surveillance that is going on that we don't know about that that the average person is not aware of. And that is influencing our lives in ways that we don't really understand. I think it's a very, very dangerous thing. And I I am working with some people on trying to do something about that. But there are very very powerful people who are lined up defending, tracking, defending surveillance, defending all these practices that I think have had a very harmful effect on our nation, and uh, bo- don't do not bode well for the future if we continue down this road. Yeah, you know, right along with those lines, I look at cybersecurity. You know, so our our consulting firm, we do like leadership training for special ops guys and and bunch of that world. And I've got some of those guys that volunteer at our charity, Child Rescue, and 
And plus there's like the little boy in me who still wants to be Jason Bourne. So I think those guys are really yeah. cool. Right? <laughs> and it's funny, like, you know, the most hardcore James Bond, Jason Bourne type of dudes, they talk to me about cyber as a threat and they have for years and nobody really cared. And like, you look at what's happened recently with the pipelines and some of this stuff. And it's like, all of a sudden that big, big issue that hadn't caused a big enough problem yet. All of a sudden yeah. in like how many, in like last few weeks, all of a sudden everybody's yeah. like trying to make catch up. Wall street journal has quotes from the FBI yeah. director saying, Hey, this is kind of like nine 11 people like wake up, you know, yeah. This, this tracking thing has some big implications that it hasn't caused a yeah. big enough problem yet, but someday there will be yeah. a big problem. It's, it's, you know, Leon Panetta once said, we're headed for a, a technology Pearl Harbor. And if we don't wake up to what's going on in the world, that's politics. The, the part that, that, that I'm most concerned about is the role that advertising and marketing are playing in this because advertising and marketing companies are collecting information at a rate that is absolutely alarming about people. The average child, when the average child reaches 13 years of age, the global ad tech industry already has 72 million data points on that child. And it is an absolute scandal. There is no there is no way it's indefensible and and i am hoping that we can do something about this because we know what happens when governments know who we're talking to and know what we're saying and have secret files on us and follow us everywhere we know what happens then because we know the history of the kgb and the stasi and the gestapo but we don't know what happens when marketers follow us everywhere, know everything we're saying, read our emails, know who we're talking to and know what we're talking about. We don't know what happens then. There's no precedent for that. But we're starting to know, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that's going the deep divisions in the U.S. now, the deep political divisions in the U.S. are in part due to algorithms that have been feeding information to people on the left and the right, different informations to them, different inform excuse me, different information to them, and has and has helped to drive a wedge in American society where we don't believe the same things anymore. And it it really we really need to do something about this because all that information that's feeding those algorithms is coming from ad tech. It's coming from people following us around and gathering information and data about us. You know, it's at least in the intelligence community, you know, it's, it's very well known, you know, I mean, look at the other countries that want to run the world, Iran, North Korea, Russia, you know, the, these, these type of places, it's very well known in that circle that there is a active information war going. I mean, they, like they haven't like they, they, they like North Korea sends entire teams to China so they can have better Internet access, but controlled 
just to learn how to hack the American system. Like this is full-time job, right? But, but they do it subtly, you know, they use, they accelerate. I mean, look at the way the Soviets did this in the seventies when, you know, groups like the black Panthers or people like this, they, they came over and they are feeding them money and weapons and, and all sorts of things to continue to break down the society. And if nobody talks about it, nobody does anything about it. Yeah. And, and we choose to ignore it. You know, Facebook did a study in 2018. Some executives at Facebook did a study. They wanted to know how their platform affected the 2016 election. And so they did a study on how people got funneled into extremist groups on Facebook. And Facebook likes to pretend that it's just a bulletin board where you, you know, you can say what you want, I can say, and and we're neutral, we don't have anything. Well, what it turned out is they found that 64% of people who joined extremist groups, either on the left or on the right, were directed there by Facebook to join. We think you might like this group. And so the the way that that the algorithms learn who we are and what our predilections are and feed us into ever ever more extreme versions of our own views where we meet people who have ever more radical notions of what our views are is clearly affecting how how politics has been done in the US and is not healthy. Well, and to your point of, in many ways, human motivations are the same, but the gadgets change, right? Did you see that Carrie Russell TV show, The Americans? No, I did. About the Russian spies? You know, just like that. You know, that that movie, that TV show takes place in the 80s, but they keep giving the references back to the 70s when they first came over to try to empower the socialist movements and trying to create the division, right? Except now... You can just, your foreign government can literally just pretend to be an advertiser and, and use ad tech to ask who are the most disaffected people? Who are the people most vulnerable to extremism, right? And it does not help that our media, like that Fox News sells ad revenue by being the most extreme in their direction or MSNBC or CNN make more money by, by encouraging divisiveness. Like that doesn't help either. Right? Doesn't help anyone. Nope. But can you imagine and- if in the 70s, if the CIA knew American marketing companies were selling intel to foreign agencies on how to how to how to make our like how to divide us against ourselves? Like yeah. the government would have shut those companies down in yeah. the 70s, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very daunting problem and I you know it 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 sickens me that the advertising industry is right in the when, when did the advertising industry become important in global politics? When did that all of a sudden it's a major factor in global politics and it's unregulated. No one's in charge. No one knows what anyone else is doing. And and the the whole the whole culture of technology and ad tech these days is do whatever that you want until someone stops you. That, that's the culture. That, I mean, how did Uber flood the streets with 
illegal taxi cab. They just did it because no one stopped them. And how did Airbnb flood the market with illegal hotel rooms? They just did it because no one stopped them. And that that's the that is part of the cult the technology culture now that is I think harmful to us and it's the same in 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 online advertising collect all the information you can about anyone you want until someone stops you and no one has stopped them and you know I think I'm beating a dead well, horse here listen, but I'm very we, unhappy about it yeah but we also we also knew about Osama bin Laden you know. So I've got a guy that has since retired from the Central Intelligence Agency that was on the Middle East desk in like mm-hmm. 97, mm-hmm. 96. He was mm-hmm. nobody. Nobody cared what he said. Yeah. And it's interesting because yeah. I've had him come in and talk to like sales organizations and stuff about what's it like to prepare an unwelcome message? Like yeah. when he met with Rumsfeld and Bush about like, we, yeah. don't, we, we don't have any evidence of yellow cake. Right. He's like, talk about the most unwelcome message. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, Yeah. But like we have the USS Cole, we have all these indicators, these little pin, what felt like pinpricks. Nobody cares until 9-11. You know, you look at this. You wait until something really bad happens. And then all of a sudden people are going to care in a hurry. And and nobody cared about online tracking in advertising and marketing until Cambridge Analytica came along and then Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica, you know, in my book, Bad Men, the very first thing I wrote about in the book, in the introduction, the very first thing was Cambridge Analytica and nobody had ever heard of it. And nobody knew. Then seven months later, it's on the front page of every newspaper in the world. And all of a sudden people are, that started to wake people up, I think, to what's yeah. going on. But there's there's still so much that we don't know. Listen, that is dangerous. Yeah, I know we're out of time, but yeah, maybe my final question for you is: Yeah, what do you attribute your skill, th- this ability you have to see things before other people see? What do you attribute that to? Skepticism. I don't believe anything that is not proven to me. And I have my own standards of what is sufficient proof. You know, not, nothing is ever 100% sure. But I have standards of, you know, what I buy. And someone tells me something and I say, my first question is, how do you know that? And if your first question to anyone who tells you anything is, how do you know that? I think you have a better chance of understanding what's true and what's an opinion. There's a there's a difference between a fact and an opinion, and it's very important to know that if you're in business. Yeah, I can't think of a better way to end. Listen, I really appreciate you doing this. Next time we come up with another book, let's have you back on the show. And, I'd love uh, to. And thanks for everything you put out for the rest of us to learn from. Thank you, Jess. It's been a pleasure. Okay, bye now.